what I've learned over time is the best developers, there's so much work that goes into a big master plan development before every, anybody ever sees a piece of dirt turnover. And so the best developers take more time up front and remain patient, even though they're eager to get started and start building and having it come out of the ground. The best developers I've seen spend a lot more time before everything starts getting their ducks in order, which makes the actual development process when things kick off much easier. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome to episode number 34 of the Placemaking Podcast. I can't believe we've already made it to number 34. I want to thank you all for joining me on this wild ride. I am extremely honored to share this next conversation with all of you. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital, a real estate company focused on investment, acquisition, asset management, and property management in Fort Worth, Texas. Chris currently oversees a vision for the company, Fort's largest real estate deals, capital relationships, executive level recruiting, strategic partnership, and chairs the investment committee among many other responsibilities as Fort CEO. Creating meaningful relationships and building a team around a vision and Fort's goals are the most important qualities that make Chris perfect for the job. Chris is a serial entrepreneur with over 14 years of real estate development and investment experience, has raised more than $110 million in equity financing through a multitude of high net worth and family office partners. To date, Fort has invested and developed over $504 million in multifamily student housing, commercial, industrial, and residential land development projects throughout Fort Worth and the state of Texas as a whole. Chris has been touted as a visionary with a demonstrated talent in looking ahead at what could be and understanding what must be done to get there. His ability to conceptualize raise capital, and execute are only a minor part of what Chris brings to the table. Now in this episode, we are going to discuss how to get everyone on the same page when assembling these properties, how to structure these contracts that are win-win for both buyer and seller, and how to get a city on board with zoning early to make the area attractive for developers. There is tons of great information in this episode. And I greatly appreciate Chris for taking time out of his busy schedule to discuss this topic of property assemblage with me. Now, as always, if you have enjoyed the show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the real estate industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. I can guarantee you that. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. This is an honor for me to have you on the on the show, fellow podcaster, pretty much Fort Worth native now. Much, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, business owner, and just all around killing it in real estate right now. And uh, I'm glad to have you on the show. 
I wanted to start off with a little bit about your background, you know, how you came through TCU and, and kind of started your real estate experience there at TCU and, and how that became the genesis of Fort Capital. Yeah. So I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas, um, and uh, lived there throughout high school. We actually moved a couple times, but started in El Paso, ended in El Paso before coming. Uh, grew up to a great mom and dad and a sister, and really kind of caught the entrepreneurial bug in high school and had just had little businesses uh, selling golf clubs on eBay. This was back again in the early 2000s when it was kind of still a novel thing to be doing. Sure. Uh, I had a landscape business. and um, But I, my best friend's dad, who's uh, a mentor of mine still to this day, was one of the largest uh, real estate owners in El Paso. And so I got really fascinated with real estate early on. My grandfather used to tell me real estate was a great thing to pursue. And so um, I really took a liking to it early on, obviously didn't get into it, was kind of young and moved to TCU in 2004 and was really fortunate to meet a guy named Adam Blake um, who had won a entrepreneur award that year for uh, a business that he had, which was essentially buying rental properties around TCU. And he was a sophomore and had bought like 12 houses. He was on a football scholarship. So was a really cool story. And um, like most college stories, I literally met him at a, uh, like standing around a keg. I had known who he was, but approached him and basically just said, you know, I, I really want to uh, learn how to do this. I had made some money from high school and he basically taught me um, how to do it. Uh, and this is again, back in 2004 and 2005. Um, as a 17-year-old was able to get a, uh, a property purchase with literally 3% down, 6% cash back at closing. Uh, lending standards were a bit different then um, sure. and started acquiring rental properties next to TCU. Eventually kind of started a property management business um, that managed my properties and others. And then again, another novel idea that as we sit here today doesn't seem so much, but um, back in 2004, 2005, students still didn't really find their housing online. They drove by, saw a sign, called on it. And so I started a, a website called rentbytcu.com. I put my <laughs> houses and all the other landlords around TCU. And my pitch was, uh, you can put it on my website. I'm going to, you know, hand out flyers and stuff to, to, to students. And if I can track it. Property, yeah. If I can lease your property for more than you're getting now, you pay me a bonus. If I can't, uh, no bonus. And so that was kind of my early days into real estate. And without going you know, into the last 16 years, that was 16 years ago, uh, I now um, own a business called Fort Capital here in Fort Worth. Um, got a wonderful team of 23 people, almost have a half a billion of assets under management. And uh, I say we have done, um, I've probably done almost everything you can do in real estate minus hotels, data centers, and things like that. But we have, uh, we've done a lot of infill development work. And we also kind of more recently in the last five years have focused a lot on industrial. I think for the purpose of this podcast, we'll focus on our development work. Um, but yeah, have been developing for over really 10, 12 years now. And uh, it's been cool. Awesome. 
I, I haven't heard that full story, so I appreciate you for telling me exactly. That's awesome. So going through TCU, but you had the bug a little earlier on um, from your friend there in El Paso. So you went to TCU, you got a finance, was it finance and marketing? Yeah, I, I was a finance uh, major, um, but I really, I took a couple marketing classes and really loved marketing. Um, and yeah. so I added it, I wanted to stay an extra semester. I graduated in four and a half years, actually graduated high school in three years. I graduated a year early. That's why I was 17 when I was at TCU. Um, yeah. Got a second major, stayed an extra half a semester, an extra semester, and it was a, a great decision. So, yeah, finance and marketing. You think any of that marketing has helped uh, now? I guess with what you're doing right now. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think maybe not everybody would agree with me. I would argue that uh, marketing was way more valuable for me than finance was. I think finance learning in like a school setting, it's certainly valuable, but I think you you really learn finance kind of when you're in the real workplace, but the things you can learn in marketing in school, you know, are things that are super valuable. And I remember I had a teacher that just told me, um, and it just made a lot of sense and maybe something people have heard, but if you can't really market and sell your product or sell whatever you're doing, like you don't need finance and accounting anyway, because there's nothing to count. And so I've mm -hmm. always really gravitated towards, marketing and uh brand building and that that goes in well with development and um mm -hmm. which i'm sure we'll talk about so yeah marketing was was big for me i'm glad i did that awesome so and you and you alluded to this previously but you've done with development you get you guys and this is kind of where i wanted to focus on on this show is you guys have acquired and and assembled some pretty pretty awesome developments in Fort Worth. And we'll touch on those here in a minute, but there's a lot that goes into that. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, you know this more than anybody. And I wanted to get your take on how those initial discussions go and how you can start to pull people around that common idea of getting on board with something that seems almost doesn't seem possible when when you when you lay eyes on you know this this group of properties to to become that master developer yeah so um you know i think one of the common characteristics of good developers is they can see things before everybody else sees them um mm -hmm. We have focused on infill development. So there's greenfield development, which is obviously going out to a farm or a pasture and just buying a, you know, a blank piece of land and you kind of create things. And then there's infill development where there's already, you know, built uh, buildings and houses and a community and all that stuff mm -hmm. and transforming that. So we focused on infill development and, um, to answer your question, I think, uh, again, another thing I picked up on, I sat at a, uh, like a conference probably 12 years ago. And um, for those listening that are familiar with Fort Worth, this was a developer that was talking about the West 7th Corridor, which has been one of the hottest uh, areas of Fort Worth for the last decade. Mm -hmm. And he was involved in that development and he um, was giving kind of this speech and he just kind of talked about what he called the barbell theory. 
And it's really simple to understand. Um, it's almost so simple that you kind of think, what am I missing? But his whole, his whole thesis was, if you're really looking for an, where the next emerging area is going to be, then you, you apply the barbell theory, which is basically like this. And the barbell can be as large or as small as you choose to make it. So let's just take West 7th for an example. One end of the barbell, each end of the barbell is an area that already has traffic, it has people, it has demand. And then the middle of the barbell that connects the two ends is kind of what you're looking at. And so if you take like downtown Fort Worth, which is one end of the barbell, you know, it has people showing up to work every day. It has a nightlife, like it has demand. And then maybe you take kind of the west side of Fort Worth, the museum district, the Camp Bowie area, the, the, all the great neighborhoods that make up that whole area. That's kind of another area that has lots of traffic and demand. And West 7th was kind of the corridor that attached both ends of the barbell. So you already had traffic going to and fro each end of the barbell. But if you looked at kind of everything that was on that West 7th court at the time, it was, you know, an old industrial park, nothing sexy. Mm -hmm. And so his whole thing was that area almost has to emerge as this as a new coming area. It, what you want in a development, especially a new development, is traffic and for people mm -hmm. to come to it. And if you can find an area where the traffic's already coming through each and every day, people get up to work, they drive down 7th Street, they come back. That's one less thing you have to do as a developer. The demand and the traffic's already there. Now you just have to uh, give them a reason to stop. For so long, they would just drive down 7th and not stop anywhere. Now you're looking. To, and so when I say the barbell could be as large or as small as you want it to be, you could also look at like Austin and DFW as two ends of the barbell and I-35 being the connector. And it's not a surprise why cities like Waco and kind of North Austin and Round Rock are exploding because the traffic's already there. Now we're just mm -hmm. giving reason to stop. And so I really, uh, I listened to that and I remember like going to Google Earth and starting to drive around the city and I would just like find barbells that would work. And um, again, it's really a pretty simple concept. And uh, that was kind of my way of understanding where the area would be, how to prove that it would be a good area, even though if you drove by it at the moment, it looked you know, kind of bleak and underserved. So, mm -hmm. um, so you find the area, uh, which we can talk about what we've done in Fort Worth, but, um, and then you obviously have to go raise money and kind of sell the dream. Um, but it's easier to sell that dream when you have kind of hard facts of uh, kind of what that barbell theory presents. Right. Traffic counts generation. Yeah, that that district that uh, you guys helped put together, that was that was pretty amazing to see, you know, that part of the barbell start to grow. I mean, you were you were one piece of that. And then the river district, which is one you're working on currently, yeah, uh, still going on. You describe that that barbell. So the river district is along White Settlement Road on the west side of Fort Worth. Um, again, either end of the barbell would be those similar neighborhoods, um, kind of on the west side, and the other end of the barbell could be like West Seventh and downtown. And again, mm -hmm. you went five years ago before we started all this and sat on white settlement in the morning and at night, you would just see cars passing by um, that uh, were probably the demographic of and the customer that you would want to quote unquote stop. So 
Mm -hmm. um, prior to the River District, we had assembled uh, some land in the West 7th Corridor. Um, we had entitled it. We ended up selling it to a big multifamily group. And the only regret I have on that deal was that I didn't buy more land around that site that we had assembled. Um, so when we got to the River District, we had kind of checked every box that this is an area that uh, hadn't seen any capital investment in over 50 years. It was a great location along the Trinity River. It already had the, the traffic and the demand that we wanted. And so what, what it really needed was um, somebody to come in and bring a large sum of capital. And so you know, there were people in the area, uh, investors around town that might have bought, you know, a house or two, a rental property or maybe a building, but it really requires somebody to bring a lot of capital and acquire enough to really be able to transform an area. And so uh, when we decided to do it in 2014, late 2014, early 2015, we raised money and uh, for about a year, we were kind of in stealth mode acquiring property. We assembled um, about 80 acres of land through about 70 different purchases and did all that first um, before starting to master develop. So I can talk about kind of the phases of how it grew or. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to get to that in a little bit. And I, I wanted to kind of first dig in a little bit more to that, what you just mentioned about acquiring these properties. How did that come about? How did you you said we went in stealth mode. What does that look like? Yeah. So, um, again, technology has come a long way. So I'll talk about how we did it. And then I'll talk about why it's probably tougher even five years later than it was five years ago. So <laughs> when we did it, um, we, when I say stealth mode, we hired, we had on staff our own, um, our own acquisition people. So we didn't work with third-party brokers. Uh, we mm -hmm. love third-party brokers, but when you're trying to do something in stealth mode and the brokerage community kind of knows about it, then they can kind of get involved. And so we hired people and literally for nine months, um, we would knock on people's doors and make them an offer on the spot. We would cold call every single property owner in the area. Um, we, we would have private negotiations. We would use... Um, the buyer, when we would put the, the different buyer, we would have um, kind of these different entities that didn't necessarily say Fort Capital, but they couldn't necessarily be traced. Because um, a lot of people, when they get an offer, if it says Fort Capital, they'll go Google Fort Capital, they'll see what we do, and immediately kind of price starts going up. So you, you mm. use kind of entities that don't kind of show where it's coming from. Um, with our investors, we had said, you know, overall our average land basis needs to be x and so if you say i'm just picking a random number 10 bucks a foot needs to be our average the more that you can buy for five or six the more you can spend kind of 15 or 16 to kind of you're always kind of averaging in mm -hmm. um and we would uh, make offers to people um, that were confidential in nature we had, we had all cash when we were acquiring, so we weren't acquiring properties that required financing contingencies and everything. And, you know, every seller is different. Um, when you're making somebody an offer that's not expecting one, we always tried to create win-win situations. So mm -hmm. we make offers. We really had done all of our due diligence on the quality of land and environmental and all that. And a lot of this stuff was residential, so we weren't as worried about environmental. 
Mm -hmm. um, but we would just make offers and say, you know, we'll close in a week. Um, we will, the day you sign the contract, there's, you know, call it $10,000 in escrow at the title company that will release to you day one. And we'll lease back to you for free for three to 12 months so that you have, a, once you get your money, you have plenty of time to figure out kind of where you're going to go next. And so mm -hmm. we created uh, great offers that worked um, really well. Some people didn't sell. A lot of people did. Um, and why I say it was different then than it is now, um, and we haven't done another assemblage since this one, um, is even in 2014 and 15, you've probably heard of the, the website or the app next door that gets mm -hmm. neighborhood associations uh, onto basically like a social media platform so they can communicate right. with each other. Well, that didn't exist then. Um, for my friends that do assemble now, I would imagine right now you kind of go make that first offer. And then that night, that person's probably logging into next door going, is anybody else getting these offers? And people can kind of figure it out pretty quick. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, that was an advantage we had. We had about, we really had about 180 days where things stayed pretty quiet. Um, but eventually people start talking, people start noticing and you know it, it becomes more challenging. So we were really, I mean, 24 seven, those first few months, just pounding mm -hmm. on doors, trying to get stuff under contract. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a good point with uh, social media. It's a little more connected, maybe so more so than uh, when, when you first were, were doing this. Yep. So after you've assembled this and, and, you know, you're working through kind of the entitlements, how do you start to market that idea how do you kind of create that image that you want for that for that development as a whole? Because you really want continuity throughout is, is why you're assembling these, these properties, right? Right. So um, when we first got into it, we really weren't, I have to be honest, we weren't planning on being this the master developer. What it was originally intended to be was just a big land assemblage, and then we would just sell off land. And what we realized pretty quickly was we bought the, the whole area is about 260 acres. I said we had about 80 of them and they were really in like the prime spots along White Settlement and kind of the, the, the good stuff. And so um, what we realized really quickly was we had honestly bought so much land that uh, nobody really wanted to compete with us because they knew our basis. And so what we, what we decided to do was um, we went to a marketing firm and we had to give the area a new identity and a new uh, feel. This again has been an area that's been around Fort Worth for 80 years. So it's not something that people didn't know about. They just didn't think about it in the way we wanted them to think about it. So we spent about three months with a marketing firm here in town uh, coming up with a name and a logo and branding and messaging and um, everything to kind of come up with this launch, which was going to be this kind of emerging area that we were going to kind of redevelop. And the second thing that I didn't really mention, but is important is we bought all this land uh, unentitled. And so again, if you're going to buy that much land and you're trying to buy it uh, a basis that you can still make money, whether you're selling the land or developing, if you go to the city first or the neighborhood first and try and start entitling everything before, you're probably not going to get much bought. So we, we had to take a risk that we were going to be able to get this land entitled. And we kind of 
being in the market, understanding how the city worked and, and what we could probably get done, we, we, it was a calculated risk. So we were buying land at a price that if we could never get entitled, we could probably get out of it uh, for what we bought it for, for its current use. So what we, the second thing we did is after we bought everything, we hired GFF and we put together a future land use map. And we, it was a three-day charrette. We invited neighbors from the neighborhood, business owners, people from other neighborhoods in the area, uh, people that were uh, kind of um, in the development world. And we spent three days kind of asking people and um, gathering ideas. And what we did was we came up with a master, uh, a master future land use plan that didn't rezone everything at the time, but it was something that the neighborhood had committed to, the city committed to, and they eventually adopted it, which was a huge thing because essentially the way it works now is if a developer comes in and they, they wanna buy a piece of land in a certain area, we can point to the future land use map. We can say, this is what was agreed upon. And the developer doesn't really have to go through the battle of trying to rezone something. So we made it really simple for developers to uh, conceptualize what they could do and, and know what they could do, which was huge. I'm a little more interested in this design charrette. So you brought in GFF, an architect, to come in and start discussing kind of connectivity with, was the city involved in this early conversation? Okay. Yeah. All the city departments were in that charrette. Okay, for three days. For three days, yeah. We hosted it up at Shady Oaks Country Club. We probably had 80 different visitors come in for kind of an hour or two at a piece, an hour or two at a piece. Hey, what would you want to see in this area? Where? Why? Um, and so everybody got to voice their opinion. Um, and then collectively, we took, you know, the opinions and, and tried to come up with a plan that would work for everybody. We got it blessed by the neighborhood and then eventually adopted by the city. That's amazing. I'm sure that was uh, that was quite the experience. Yeah, it was, it was it was cool. So you you got the neighborhood buy-in, which is also huge. How did you start to actually? So you've got a land use plan. You've got you've got kind of your initial um, logo marketing. How did you spread that message? Yeah, social media. Um, in part of our budget with our investors, we had uh, allocated funds to uh, social media and uh, PR and uh, industry publications. And then, of course, just our network of developers and people that might want to build homes and things in the area. We talked to all the real estate agencies around town. We just did everything we could to get uh, the message out there. We built a website. Uh, that showed the land that we owned. And then as time went by, we update the projects that have happened, uh, projects that are under development. We highlight businesses in the area. And I think one thing that was unique for us that um, you know not everybody might get the chance to do, one of the residents in the area, uh, just the greatest person, Noelle, she, uh, she lived in the area. She was a marketing and social media kind of expert. And so one thing we've learned over time is if you hire a third party marketing firm to do marketing for your development, they do a great job, but they're, they're not living in the area. They kind of come in once a month, take a bunch of pictures and then kind of put those out through the month. What we got with Noel was somebody that really lived in the area was taking pictures, you know, every other day, new residents could tell a much kind of 
richer story about the area mm -hmm. and it was coming from someone that lived in the area that believed in it and so um, if we ever did this again I think one of the keys to our playbook would be trying to find somebody already in the area that could help us with kind of social media and branding because I think it made a world of difference. That's interesting yeah they had the uh, passion uh, a lot of people and you, you know we, we kind of see this in you know the near south side and and all these others where these communities are very passionate people there that love their community. And, and that's what you were seeing there with Noel. That's, that's interesting. And yeah, the other thing I would just say is, um, which is challenging about infill development, but it's, it's why I think returns are better if you can do it right is, you know, development's kind of weird in that, you know, if you're going to sell t-shirts or something, you go to your customer and you kind of ask them what kind of t-shirts they would want and then you build for the customer but in development you're often getting approvals and you're getting buy-in from people that don't necessarily agree with you have a dog in the fight i mean the the truth is most people uh vote no just because they don't like change and so a developer kind of goes and asks the anti-customer in, in a way <laughs> what to build and needs to get approval there and so it's just a lot more handholding to get onto consensus. And it's something I think is, you know, with social media and the spread of information really quickly, it's harder and harder to get buy-in. Um, and, you know, you're, you're in the development world, the amount of kind of stories that kind of come out of nowhere and, hey, we heard you're gonna build a hotel on top of, you know, Mrs. Wilson's house. And it's like, no, but that information spread and so a lot of developing is managing expectations and that's why having a future land use plan renderings being really transparent up front about the goal of the development is important um because you got to get buy-in really early um and you know it's as much about being like a i don't want to say like a politician but you're you're managing a lot of different stakeholders that aren't always you know the true end customer so you've got to be able to talk to everybody understand their needs and try and do something that kind of fits for everybody. Um, and there's always going to be people that don't like what you do, no matter what you do, and you got to manage that too. True. And I, I think you mentioned it earlier, and you kind of touched on it. Well, you guys had a great reputation with the city of Fort Worth to begin with. And I, I think that went a long way for you guys on uh, coming up with that on that design charrette and then you know even before that just getting in buy-in having those relationships before um and having that reputation as being transparent and um having those end user benefits in mind when you you're starting to create these developments i think that really goes a long way and a lot of people really see that i agree with you too on on what you're saying there but i think also being established in a community before you're, you know, tackling something like this is probably also very valuable. Yeah, I think? think being in Fort Worth was, was a huge help. Having a relationship and track record with the city of doing what we say we're going to do. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, the, the best developers, and I'm not necessarily even putting us in that category, that's for, the, that's for other people to say, but what I've learned over time is the best developers, there's so much work that goes into a big master plan development before every, anybody ever sees a piece of dirt turnover. 
And so the best developers take more time up front and remain patient, even though they're eager to get started and start building and having it come out of the ground. The best developers I've seen spend a lot more time before everything starts getting their ducks in order, which makes the actual development process when things kick off much easier. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if we, at the time we were doing it, we knew that was uh, a best practice, but certainly learning now and talking to other master plan developers, it's a common theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, taking that time to, to sharpen your ax before you start cutting the tree, right? So we talked about having that master plan and having the charrette. Was that kind of the first discussion you had with the city or were there talks prior to that kind of heads up kind of deal? Or did you talk with them more, you know, about whether the infrastructure was, was going to be able to handle <laughs> this kind of development? Were, were there those kind of talks before the charrette or did that kind of evolve out of the charrette? That kind of started once we had acquired, not when we had acquired everything, but once we kind of had critical mass, we started having that conversation. Again, even alerting the city that we were in buy mode and buying land sends off kind of everybody's antenna goes up and, and we really wanted to stay quiet. I will say right. um, my partner, Jason, had come from David Weekly Homes and was part of their infill development team. And we had other people on staff with development experience. And so a lot of the due diligence we did on the area were trying to answer those questions mm -hmm. about capacity and you know all the things that you mentioned, traffic studies, would we overbuild and all those things and trying to get a really good idea. Um, but as soon as we were at critical mass, we started having conversations with the city. Um, we, you know, I kind of skipped over one part. We brought in an institutional multifamily group kind of halfway through the assemblage that uh, put a site under contract. And so that got kicked off with the city. Um, and even in, even in a, a deal like that, you still have about three or four months of, of working time with the developer in the city before public notices start going out. So we were also learning what the city was asking them and things of that nature while that was going on. Again, that wasn't a, it's not that that had to have happened for us to be successful, but it was certainly a help in our situation to uh, be kind of having an under the radar deal going on that we could start learning from um, and see how, you know, the questions the city were asking and how that would impact other things. Right. Having a high density development go in there and, and start to see what, what uh, issues were arising from that. Saying one more thing about the early days that I think helped our situation. Again, I think the situation's unique. It's not, it, I'm not saying it's not scalable, but um, it's, it's unique to do what we did. Um, we also committed early on to building an office building in the area and moving our company into it. And so I joke, but I just said that the building that we designed at the time, I just said, this needs to stand out like a sore thumb. People need to wonder why we would ever build something this nice in the area. Um, but that also really helped get the neighborhood involved our, on, on our side. It really helped with the city is saying like, we're not going to be some developer in some high rise in another city that you never get to see. We're going to move our business here. We're going to be active in the community. And we've now officed here almost four years. And I think that was another really critical spot. So if somebody's listening to this, it's thinking about doing an urban development and really transforming an area. If you have the opportunity to move your company into that area, I, I, it went a long way. Um, I yeah. can't, say, can't say how much value that was, but I just know people really 
bought into the idea and trusted more of our long-term vision when they knew we would be here as well. No, that makes perfect sense. That goes along with uh, the reputation that we were talking about previously and uh, just stand behind your word. So we talked about having, yeah, I mean, you put in all cash offers on a lot of deals that takes a lot of, a lot of capital. So what, how did that look? How did that structure, what did that look like in the early days when you're just pitching this idea to investors and raising that, that capital to, to be able to pull this together? I mean, that, that had to have been a huge undertaking. Yeah. So, um, you know, we had talked about it earlier, we had done this, uh, we had done a small deal at TCU, much smaller than we did it in West 7th, and then we were doing it here. So we had a track record of showing kind of returns. And I think what investors are going to expect, especially if you're buying kind of unentitled land, they're not really looking for, you know, a 7% return. They're looking for kind of big multiples on their money. And so um, they understand that the, kind of the pitch to the investors was, look, we're going to spend all cash because we're essentially buying land. Even if we're buying something with a building on it, it's probably like a vacant building or, you know, it's it's not something that we're trying to make cash flow on when we're assembling land. So we just said, we're going to take very little risk up front until we know what our position is going to look like. At which point when we're done, we'll go to a bank and we'll get a line of credit that's also used similar to cash. But as long as we're in kind of the only way we would kind of take more permanent debt was when we just started building buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and the permanent debt would be on that specific building. And so we were low levered. Our pitch to investors was we're going to buy at a basis that if we got no entitlements, we feel like we could get out of. And um, if we um, and if we can get entitlements, we should have to see a pretty good lift on the land. And so um, you know, there, there's a lot of upside that the downside's relatively covered, but it's kind of like, we're either going to give you all your money back, um, which, you know, is the downside case, or we could probably return multiples of your money in an upside case. So um, we just didn't really want to lever up early on. Because uh, again, in development, especially in the world we're in today, where there's lots of development going on, um, you know, projects get delayed, you know, a year, things get held up. We just didn't want debt kind of, you know, be worried about debt kind of eating us up. So we were real conservative up front and we've used leverage on deals as they've come out of the ground. Uh, and I hear this a lot. It's a lot about uh, return of your capital first and then uh, tell you what your return on capital could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like they understood that there was a risk of potentially no return, um, but fairly low risk of completely losing their capital. For sure. You still have the land. um, And they they truly, you don't do that on every deal, but when you're buying on entitled land, it's like, you're either going to give us a dollar and we're going to give you a dollar back, or you give us a dollar and we're going to try and give you three or four dollars back. And the only Mm -hmm. difference between each one is we've achieved land entitlements uh, or we haven't. And Mm -hmm. so they're kind of willing to take that risk. Um, and again, with our track record and having proven that we had bought lots of unentitled land, um, that was huge. And I, and I would just make one other comment, which is there are not a lot of people in a lot of firms out there 
that specialize in buying unentitled land. An institutional developer, like a multifamily group or a, a big home builder or you know retail, whatever you, because of the nature of their business model, they can't buy land unless they can basically close on it and get a permit. And so they are willing, there's a big arbitrage in the folks that are willing to buy the land unentitled and take what we call entitlement risk mm -hmm. um, and other people can't pay. So, you know, one of my good friends, big institutional developer, global company, and he's, you know, he'll, he would say if he was on the podcast right now, I would rather pay you top dollar for a piece of dirt that I can get a permit on than pay, you know, 50% less for something that I have no future with. And that's really a function of their business model and the restrictions that institutional capital puts on things. Sure. Sure. And you guys were a little more flexible. You're able to, to be a little more creative and it showed, I assume it showed pretty good returns because uh, obviously the investors came back for, uh, for some more deals. So, so did you know most of these investors? Were they previous investors that you worked with or there was there new ones that you had reached out to or uh, by this point, I assumed you had a pretty good track record, like you said. So um, you probably had more people coming to you than you had reached out to others. Yeah, we syndicated the capital uh, from high net worth um, and family offices really around DFW. I, I don't know all the investors in it off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure almost all of them are in DFW which again, wasn't like by design, but the more I've thought about it over the years, um, it really helps when you have an investor base that is also living in Fort Worth, believes in the city, you know, they have connections, they can help push things along. Not that we've, you know, gone to all our investors to help us out with all these favors, but it helps when the investor group is kind of invested in the city as well or in the area and not necessarily some capital source out of like New York that you know only cares about the return and not necessarily about like the growth of the city and all that good mm -hmm. stuff. So it was a, a hodgepodge of I think 20, 25 investors, um, you know, all different types of check sizes. But um, again, that's the beauty of having an investor base like that. It's it's a lot more flexible. Before we end here, I like to kind of get your certain resources that you use and that you go to often that uh, maybe it's a book or, or I know you've got your own podcast, so we'll hit on that here in a second. But, um, and I know you're very active on Twitter. <laughs> Is there any, uh, any certain resources that you would recommend for those looking to get a little more information or insight into this kind of, this kind of very niche uh, development? Yeah, um, I am active on Twitter and I would tell anybody I'm not on any other social media platform except for Twitter and then I have a LinkedIn account, but I don't really use it. Yeah. Um, Twitter is a, has for me over the last couple of years has been a wealth of knowledge. There are so many people on there sharing and I think it's changed a lot since the Twitter that was 10 years ago to where it is today. So that's a good resource. Um, I've been fortunate to be a part of a group called YPO um, which is uh, business owners, that's a resource. But for me, there's really no, uh, again, I, not everybody follows this career path, but I, I've just, I've never worked for anybody and I've always just been kind of like, I'm gonna figure it out as I go kind of guy. 
Mm -hmm. um, there's positives to that. I've made probably lots of mistakes that I probably wouldn't have made had I learned from somebody else. But I think maybe the biggest thing I could say is it's really not a book. Um, you know, I've read books, I've listened to podcasts, I've done all that, but it's really, um, every time I have a question, I really just go try and find someone that's done exactly what I'm trying to do. And whether I know them or don't know them, try and just talk to them. And you can get so much more out of a 30 minute conversation with a developer that's been there, done that, than in my opinion, like they'll tell you all the things that you know, only the person that's been in the arena can tell you. And so uh -huh. um, I would just say most of my knowledge has come from uh, really seeking out advice from other people, mentors, people older than me, people that have done what I'm trying to do. And um, I would just say to anybody listening, um, I've talked to people that, that when I say that approach, they're maybe a little more timid or nervous to go approach people. And I would just say like, there's so many people out there willing to share. Um, and if somebody's not willing to share, that's kind of on them, not on you. But um, I've just never, it's always come natural to me to just pick up the phone or send somebody an email, whether I know them or not, and say, you know, can I get 30 minutes of your time to ask you some questions? And the majority of the things that I've learned along the way have been through just one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who have, who have done it before me. That's exactly what I'm doing right now. Thank you. That's I it. appreciate That's it. Part about having a podcast, you can interview, but you're you're also getting to learn. I do the same exactly, exact <laughs> exactly. And let's let's touch on that real quick. I I listen to your uh, you listen to your show quite often. You've been killing it recently. You've got several come out in the last couple of weeks. Um, so can you kind of give us a little pitch about your your podcast and then uh, where where they can find out a little bit more about you? Yeah, um, so it's called the Fort Podcast with Chris Powers. Um, I started it as a side project a couple of years ago. And again, it really stemmed from a, I felt like I was in a fortunate situation to always be having these really cool conversations that I felt like more people would want to hear. I was always kind of rehashing conversations I had with people to other people. And then thirdly, I said, if nobody ever listens to this, uh, that's okay too. I'm going to record a bunch of conversations. And one day when I'm old and gone, my, my <laughs> three-year-old and a one-year-old, my kids can listen to these episodes if they choose to see what I was interested in when I was in my 30s. Um, and we interview uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, leaders in business, and ask them about their stories. And we do a variety of industries, but um, we probably do half our episodes focused solely on real estate and then uh, the rest other industries. And then more recently, uh, we release an episode every couple weeks or month that is like a skill or a lesson that we have learned at Fort and we just kind of share it. And that has come from, again, we talk to people all the time that want to know more about how we do things. And rather than having to tell that story for an hour, a hundred times, I can point people to that episode and say, hey, listen to this, and then let's talk after that. And so we just did one on the cattle industry where we broke down how the cattle industry works. We're probably going to do more industry breakdowns, but yeah, um, yeah, it's been super rewarding. Like you, like we just said, as much as I love interviewing, I also look at it as a time I get to sit down with these great folks and just learn. Um, and we've done 82 episodes and we're really starting to gain some momentum. And so I don't think it'll ever be my full-time job, but we're certainly 
put some some more resources behind it and try and reach more folks. So I've, it's been one of my most fun projects I've ever worked on. That's awesome. Yeah, it's you know you you mentioned the cattle industry. I mean, the, so many of these conversations are so interesting for for me listening to them. And uh, like you said, they not all of them are expected like the like your cattle industry, but you know, you also talked to Mike Berry and, and several others in the area, Fort Worth area, which uh, was interesting for, for me being in Fort Worth to hear those stories about, you know, how, how certain areas like Alliance has come about. There's just so much information in there and it's kind of like a time capsule, you know, like you were saying, you, you kind of go back and see last year, whoa, this is what we were thinking about this and Yep. And, and now here we are at 2020 and <laughs> and it's probably there's probably five or ten things in our office that we've worked on or things that we are working on that have literally and it wasn't intended have been some comment that somebody said on an episode that my antenna went up and went and dug a little deeper on it and and we're working on it so yeah. you know selfishly it's as much I, I get as much out of it for me learning as you know probably listeners get learning from the guests that I have on yeah that's awesome. Well, Chris, I will let you get back to your family. I know they want you back at home. So I appreciate all your time here today and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. And I love what you're doing with the podcast and keep killing it. All right. I appreciate it, Chris. 